This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we have for you a sermon from Joe Novenson. Joe Novenson currently serves as pastor of senior adults at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. This sermon was originally recorded in June 2018 at the PCA General Assembly in Atlanta, Georgia. This is an unspeakable honor. The privilege of opening the Word of God together. Before I pray, I would like to frame the direction in which we will take in our study. Dr. Jun spoke beautifully of love globally and locally. Tonight, I would like to speak familiarly about us. I want to bring up a topic that is sensitive. Frankly, it has been disquieting to my soul for some time. It's been mentioned several times on the floor. I'd begin this way before I even pray. I've been ordained as a teaching elder within the PCA for approximately 40 years and three years of study at Westminster Seminary beforehand. Not long after my introduction to reform thinking and the riches of the theological heritage that is ours, I began to notice something about us, a persistent and seemingly resistant to change, mark, behavior. I'd witnessed it, and before I pray, I confess I have fallen into it. It is a way of communicating, not to one another, but about one another. It is a way of communicating when we do speak about one another, at times in less than edifying ways. It's an informal gathering sometimes which happen in the very halls of the General Assembly, at restaurant tables late-night conversations, and then formally in print and social media. It's persistent, and sometimes the language is combative, even intemperate, at times inflammatory, periodically suspicious, and occasionally, occasionally alarmingly confident when the people about whom the conversation turns have never even been spoken to. 
And it's strangely acceptable. I bring it together in one moment. I remember when a Christian leader, when I was at Westminster Seminary, was being challenged judicially. I watched as people who had attended the judicial proceedings spoke, and I heard them speak with such attack. It took my breath away, and then I saw him tried in press, in periodicals, and then I walked into the Howard Johnson. Remember those? Down the hill from Westminster, and saw the president of my seminary, Ed Clowney, holding this man's arm, weeping and appealing to him. I didn't hear the conversation. I can only imagine he was saying, please, the word. And I asked, who's most like my master? So tonight, I want to speak about an elephant in our room that's neither faithful to the word nor does it fit our reformed tradition. I want to ask a question. I want to ask and try and answer, why is it so persistent and why is it that it's not bothersome to us? What has, what has this that has such a deep lodge inside of us? How's that possible? And then second, what might God do? What God has done in the past, perhaps, to his people, if this is unacceptable to him. Let's pray, and we'll begin. Father, please, we're asking that in moments you would do much. We're asking that we would see Jesus and understand ourselves, our Savior, afresh. We ask in Christ. Amen. From a letter dated November 25th, 1544, Heinrich Bullinger wrote to Calvin and said, as he sought some support for persecuted Waldensians, in an aside, quote, Luther has broken out in fierce invective against you. When Luther was known to do that, Philip Melanchthon said of Luther, when he addressed an opponent, he sought to leave him, quote, beaten black and blue, end of quote. Calvin wrote this. I hear that Luther has at length broken out in fierce invectives, not so much against you as against the whole of us. But of this I do earnestly desire to put you in the mind in the first place that you would consider how eminent a man Luther is and the excellent endowments wherewith he is gifted, and what strength of mind, what resolute constancy, how great his skill, and how he is gifted. 
With the efficiency and power of doctrinal statement, he hath hitherto devoted his whole energy to diffuse far and near the doctrine of salvation. Often I have been wont to declare that even although he were to call me the devil, I should still not the less hold him in such honor that I must acknowledge him to be an illustrious servant of God. When I reflect how much at such an unseasonable time these intense quarrels divide and tear us asunder, I almost entirely lose courage. O oh God of grace, what pleasant sport and pastime do we afford those he called enemies as if we had hired ourselves to do their work. Luther blogged an attack. Calvin blogged loving honor. That's my tradition. 1700s, the Council of John Newton. As to your opponent, I wish that before you set pen to paper against him, and during the whole time that you are preparing your answer, you may commend him by earnest prayer to the Lord's teaching and blessing. This practice will have a direct tendency to conciliate your heart to love and pity him. And such a disposition will have a good influence upon every page you write. If you account him a believer, though greatly mistaken in the subject of debate between you, the words of David to Joab concerning Absalom are very applicable. Quote, deal gently with him for my sake, end of quote. In a little while, you'll meet him in heaven. He'll then be dearer to you than your nearest friend that you have upon this earth. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. Of all the people who engage in controversy, we who are called Calvinists are most expressly bound by our own principles to exercise gentleness and moderation. Oh, my Savior, help us. Time won't allow me to read Sibs, McShane, Warfield, Burroughs, Chalmers, Bonar. This is our heritage. But we just need to fix our words. You know well enough the scripture says, Proverbs 23, 7, and just from the Council of Newton, we've learned its inner disposition. Again, Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks, so is he. Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Ecclesiastes 5, 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter words before God. So first question, all right, if it's not just words, but it's inner disposition, where do we begin? Why is this so resistant to change? I want to take you to a church, a good church. A church that Paul commended, not like Laodicea, 
I want to take you to the Ephesian church. It's important to see this warning is given to the following. Chapter 1-1, the saints. Chapter 1-3, blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. 1-4, chosen in him to be holy and blameless. 1-4-5, in love predestined to be adopted. Not those dysfunctional Christians over there. This warning is for a blessed church. And notice how he warns them, chapter 4, verse 17. The ESV says, now this I say, the NIV says, so I tell you, when do you do that? When do you say what you're about to say? I'll tell you when my mama did it. When she wanted me to listen, she said, I tell you, and I better listen. This is rhetorical emphasis. This is alarm. He gets more intense and testifies, says the ESV, the NIV, and insists on it. But the word is martoruomai, the legal word for bearing witness. When you begin to use legal language, when you're alarmed, and then he says, in the Lord, I'm speaking to as one in Christ. You listen as one in Christ. This warning comes in Christ. It's wrapped in the gospel. We ought to be sitting like Doberman pincers with our ears straight up in the air. What does he have to say? So from who he addresses, stable church. How he addresses with words of alarm. Look at where he goes with his warning. Listen. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Is he going to talk about the temple of Bacchus? Going and tying on a drunk? Is he going to talk about the the temple of Aphrodite? Where all kinds of immorality would be called worship? None of that. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. Not a single reference to external behavior. It's the whole inner disposition. What he's just done is said, Ephesian Christians, there's a riptide underneath the sunrise of the pretty photo sucking you with a system of futile thinking, darkened understanding. Listen, to saints, he says, separated from the life of God, I can be saved and function non-Christianly because of ignorance and hardness of heart. Now, blessedly, this warning is accompanied by identification of symptoms, Good, I want to make sure I don't got this. So verse 19, he says, they have become callous. NIV says, having lost all sensitivity and having given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The NIV says, with a continual lust for more. Here's the first symptom. Loss of sensitivity. Callous. Literally, the word means past feeling. 
Now, where has this sensitivity been lost? Time won't allow me, but I want to suggest to you clearly he's saying you have become insensitive past feeling to God. And whenever you lose sensitivity here, sensuality here follows. But first, the loss of sensitivity. Please hear me. Would you look at me for a moment? I crushed both my hands. I'm about to make a very simple statement to you that I think is importantly profound. When you can't feel, and I know, you can't feel that you can't feel. I bleed. And my wife goes, oh, honey, oh, you don't want to sit next to me when we're passing plates that are hot. I can't tell. You can't feel when you can't feel. What if we stopped feeling the trespass? of each other, the numbness so common that no one around us seems to get it either. What if our cutting, careless, cavalier, caustic communication isn't even registering to our spiritual sensibilities? Dr. Christopher Wright, in his commentary on Deuteronomy, says, those who will not love God soon find it irksome or uneconomical to love their neighbor. Jesus, please, not me. Please. Symptom number one, loss of sensitivity. Number two, sensuality loosened. Listen, verse 19, giving themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Don't let our culture steal that word sensuality and reduce it to sexuality only. The word means at least that, but not only that. Every kind of impurity and sensuality would be impure anger, impure disregard, impure disrespect, impure control, impure language, impure desire, loss of sensitivity, loosened sensuality, and as someone smarter than me has said, follow your unchristlike emotions, follow your anxiety. Follow your worry. Follow your earthly fear. And on the other side of it, you'll likely run into a kind of impurity that runs more on sense than salvation. It took a ruling elder sitting me and my wife down to show me that I related to her out of fear and not out of faith and favor. As he showed me what a frightened man I was and how sinful that was, I was about to speak somewhere that my heroes had preached. And I looked him in the eye and I said to the ruling elder, I said, I, I, can't, I can't go there. I've got to cancel this preaching time. And he said, why would you do that? So everything you've shown me, I'm just not worthy to do that. And he went, what did you say? I said, you heard me. I'm not worthy to go there and preach. And he went, what did you say? And I said, you heard me. And he said, you mean, 
you ever thought you were? This is not a preacher story. This happened to me. I sat there like I'd been hit by a two by four. Oh my God in heaven. I'm led more by fear than by you. So that worthiness is the currency of my service. Insensitive. Sensual. And I couldn't even tell. Third symptom, self-deceived. Listen, verse 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is... It's a present passive continuing tense. It's a participle. Is corrupt through deceitful desires. I like the way the NIV says, is being corrupted to capture the continuing tense. Now let me say this directly and clearly. When are you deceived? When you know it or when you don't know it? It's a very important answer. It's only when you don't know it. If you know you're being conned, you can con the conner. If you don't know you're being conned, you are conned. And he just said, every one of the Ephesian believers and every one of us have desires that have got us conned. We're not deluded. We're deceived. This isn't denial. This is deception. We're clueless to it. This blindness means you might be the only one in your family, the church, your neighborhood, your staff that can tell how blind you are. Excuse me, you may be the only one who can't. Your mate may, your kids, colleagues, siblings, friends, they can see the frozen bitterness the calculated control, the joy-stealing self-pity, the subterranean lust, the hopeless cynicism. They can see you're deceived, but you could be clueless because of loss of sensitivity, led by sensuality, self-deceived. Here's the fourth. I'm so glad for this one because this one's a little more obvious. It says, verse 22, corrupt through deceitful desires. The word for corrupt comes from the word for fruit rotting, milk spoiling, things going sour. Have you ever left a potato in a back corner of a kitchen cabinet and didn't know it was there and walked into your kitchen one morning and thought, Someone has died. (laughs) The man who wrote about the fruit of the Spirit says, you can start to rot. It's not love. It's as Jack Miller called it, the self on hair trigger. Just tap it and off it goes. Or as Paul said, biting and devouring each other. There's not joy. There's hopeless cynicism. and There's not peace. There's permafrost, anxiety. There's not patience. 
It's my way or the highway. How do you smell? Now be very careful as you hear my question. If you've never traveled to a country that does not care nearly as much about personal hygiene as we do, you won't understand this, but if you have, you will. You realize, as you often enter such a culture, body odor is not offensive there. And it'll hit you. Jarringly. For about an hour. And then you'll go nose blind. Blessedly. What if we don't smell very good and we're all nose blind? And be very careful about doing churchy air freshener behavior. Breaking out the glade. You get real busy doing what comes real easy instead of doing real repentance. It's scary to speak to people, to visit them, to be rejected, potentially, be rebuffed. My friend Chandapilla used to say, take every piece of creation from between you and another person, especially the ones with whom you disagree. If you don't need to use the phone, don't. If you don't need to use a letter, don't. Get face-to-face with the Imago Dei. The Bible compares the church to a house. If that's the case, the PCA Administrative Committee is the plumbing of the church. Its work is mostly hidden from view, and you don't appreciate it until it breaks. The AC provides churches, presbyteries, and the assembly with the expertise and action needed to keep their ministries moving forward. They don't set the agenda for the PCA. They just make sure its agenda is accomplished. Their vital work depends on generous churches and individuals like you. Learn more about them at PCAAC.org. Well, a problem this strong, loss of sensitivity, lost, loose sensuality, self-deception, and fruit rotting requires some big action. What might God do? For this, I'm going to take you back to Psalm 51. Two brief introductory comments. I'm not turning here because I'm trying to say that the way we communicate to one another informally and formally or communicate about one another is equal to murder and adultery with which David is facing before God in Psalm 51. I'm not saying that. But I am saying his numbness, his insensitivity that allowed him to do that. Here's my calculation, according to the study, of at least nine months after murder and sexual adultery. To go on nine months, that numbness, that loss of sensitivity, that's underneath every sin that we rationalize. That's my first caveat. So I'm looking at that loss of sensitivity. Second, Psalm 51 was written 200 years before the first Olympics, 500 years before Buddha or Confucius were born. 
600 years before Socrates, Aristotle, or Plato, 1,500 years before Muhammad. Why is that important? The gospel is right there. Don't miss it, as we pointed out. So, there's a single king on a small strip of land in the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. It's called Israel, and it is David. God has hit the beach on that little piece of land that he plans on taking over the earth, and that king has committed murder in order to cover up his adultery, and he's killed a friend, an incredible warrior, and he's carrying on for some nine months. And if you had looked at him, I'm going to speculate that according to 2 Samuel 6, his worship would have been very impressive, very passionate. Look at that. He was even mocked for the zeal as he returned the ark. Look at 2 Samuel 7. Boy, was his prayer incredible. That is a remarkable prayer. 2 Samuel 8, in terms of kingdom leadership, he captures 1,000 chariots, 7,000 charioteers, 20,000 foot soldiers. He defeats Philistines, Moabites, Arameans, and Edomites. Wow! But dive! Dive! Dive. And there's a ripcide sucking him into danger. And he's insensitive to it. Where do you see that in the text? Listen to what he says, 51.3. I know my sin and transgressions, and they're always before me. Now listen. This is language of contrast. What he's saying is, finally, I went on for months trying to act like a lover, not an adulterer. Like a king, not a killer. Finally, I wake up thinking about it. I go to bed thinking about it. He's identifying what once was, but now ain't. The insensitivity is gone. 15.4, against you and you only have I sinned. He realized, whatever I do here is cosmic treason, as R.C. called it. When Nathan confronted him in 2 Samuel 12.9, he said, why did you despise the word of the Lord? He didn't say, why did you commit adultery and kill you begin to see why Jesus said this to Saul of Tarsus. Remember his words? Saul. Saul, why do you persecute, say it? He wasn't saying, oh, oh yeah, and the other Christians. Here's what he's saying. Do you know what kind of king I am? I'm the kind of king that is so close to my people. Touch them. And you offend me. That's why he says in Zechariah 2.8, touch Israel and you stick your finger in the apple of my eye. David's saying, I'm finally sensitizing what I've done as I've shoved my finger in your eye. Psalm 51, 6, he says, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Implication, I have lived superficially. 
Truth hasn't been in the inner place. I get it now. You want it all the way down. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. I've lived disconnected. I've lived behaviorally. He's basically saying, I am Ephesians 4, 17. Futile in thinking, darkened in understanding, separated from the life of God, ignorance that's in them because of the hardness of heart. Print it on my t-shirt. And 51.8, we get to, all right, enough, Joe. What could God give us to help us? What has he given in the past? David tells you. Strap in. 51.8, the bones you have broken will dance. Who broke them? God. The word that's used is a derivative in Hebrew of dakah, which means to shatter, to crush. Could be a war illustration. That when people would do battle, they'd have lifted shield and lifted sword and spear. And a wise move was to go low and hammer the shins. Wham! And when the person collapsed on the ground, easy kill. What he just said is, you reduced me to a pile of protoplasm. He says more. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Here he leaves the metaphor of bones and says, what I'm talking about as I write you this prayer is that you took the immaterial part of me, and he uses a different word here. Now it's shabar, which means to break to pieces. It's used for a tree limb in Job 24, an arm in Job 31, a broken war bow in Psalm 37. What he's saying is, You took that part that held me up, the rebar, the skeletal structure that wasn't you, and smashed it. And then he combines the two words in Psalm 51, 17, a broken shabar and contrite dakah, heart, oh God. That's what you did. You went all the way to my heart. And you did this. You hurt me like heaven. Which feels to a sinner sometimes worse than hell. Because hell, hopes will never change. And heaven wants us to. So he's saying, at my deepest place, what holds me up, you break. This is what you give. What does it feel like? Let me tell you what it feels like. Let me read to you Augustine when he encountered God. Listen to his personal description in 3391 AD. I now find myself driven by the tumult of my mind to take refuge in this garden where no one could interrupt that fierce struggle which I was my own contestant. I was beside myself with madness that would bring me sanity. What a great line. I was dying a death that would bring me life. Even better line. 
I was frantic, overcome with violent anger with myself for not accepting your will and entering into your covenant. I tore my hair, hammered my forehead with fists. I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave myself away to tears which now streamed from my eyes. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true sovereign joy, you drove them from me and you took their place. God took Augustine to the map. Full body contact Christianity. He's hurting them like heaven. Don't miss this. Here's the gospel. This is a grace quake. This is a truth trauma. This is a God-given blast to bless. This is a God-initiated, painful, sanctifying grace. It's designed to make us collapse. The gospel's at its highest gear when you hear the snap. The gospel's doing its deepest work when you feel the burn. The grace of God is removing all false skeletal structures other than Holy Spirit himself. And to prove that this is God's plan, he says, Psalm 51, 17, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Why did he say that? Here's my suggestion. It's purely an exegetical suggestion. I know that. I know what I feel and have felt when he has broken me. Here's what I feel. You despise me. And David wrote, no. He loves us so much. He won't let anything hold us up but himself. It's why in Isaiah 66, verse 2, this is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit. Isaiah 57, I live in the high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the hearts of the contrite. I will heal him. I will guide him. I will restore him. Listen, there are seven penitential psalms. Psalm 6 says, my bones are in agony. Psalm 32, my bones wasted away. Psalm 51, broken bones. Psalm 102, my bones burn and glow like embers. Psalm 130, my soul watches like a watchman for the morning. Here it's sleeplessness. Psalm 143, my spirit faints and fails. What I'm telling you is, this is normal. Now listen, when I first read Augustine struggling like that, I thought... This guy had a little bit too much time on his hands. He should have just gone out and shot some baskets. I don't think that anymore. I start to see that if there's something inside of me that is not like my master, he has every right and apparently does this quite often. What if we need a truth trauma? A gospel break? What if we need to sing that great old song of those great theologians, the Mills Brothers, from 1957? He always hurts the ones he loves. But there's more. 
Psalm 51, 6, surely you desire truth in the inner parts, wisdom in the inmost place. I got a question. How are you going to get truth down there? How's it going to get that deep? Permit me, I'm going to jump back to Ephesians 4, 23 and show you the connection. 4.23 of Ephesians says, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Hear the similarity? Truth in the inner parts, wisdom in the inmost place, spirit of your minds. What is the spirit of your minds? I'll tell you it's not what you think. It's how you think. It's the thinking under your thinking. The great Cornelius Van Til said, it's your presuppositions. It's the deepest core of the way we think. David is saying, superficial Christianity is an oxymoron. Take it down here. Profoundly apply the gospel. But still I ask, how? Here it comes, Ephesians 4.24. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Briefly, he's saying a vigorous redress of what's wrong within me comes when I redress myself with the reality of the gospel to address what's wrong. This picture of clothing goes all the way from pre-fall we were naked to post-fall being clothed by God to the, what the priests wore to the wedding garments provided by Jesus to the armor of Isaiah 59 and Ephesians 6 to the dress in Revelation. Each of them was given white robes. It's a fusion of this. I'm weak in here. I'm fallen. I'm still not fully sanctified, but I'm in Christ. And it's the fusion of the reality of who I am, in fact, is callous, insensitive, struggling with this now sensuality loosed, this problem of being self-deceived, beginning to rot. In essence, it's beginning to live like this. I can't, said Dick Woodward. You can. And I'm in you. I'm not. You are. And I'm strapped in. I haven't. Oh, but you have. And I'm wearing you like a glove. I fail. You don't. I'm in. That's what this has meant through redemptive history. Let me give you an illustration and we'll move to conclusion. In 1964, Clint Eastwood paired up with Italian film director Sergio Leone for the first of a series of spaghetti westerns. They were filmed in Italy in the span and in Spain in the space of about eight weeks for $200,000. The first one was called Fistful of Dollars. If you've never seen them, 
The language of the actor and the voiceovers don't even match. And Clint Eastwood played the iconic figure of the man with no name. And when one film they finally name him, he gets called Joe. Oh, no. And, but in Fistful of Dollars, the bad guys think they've killed him. And in the end of the film, he comes into their town and he has two sticks of dynamite, lights them, throws them into downtown, and boom, 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 they go off. And there's smoke, and all the bad guys, led by a guy named Ramon, come out. And they're in the street, and you see vintage Clint Eastwood in that iconic poncho that now becomes ubiquitous in all the films. Clink. Clink. But the clink doesn't match his steps. Clink. <laughs> clink. And when he comes through the smoke, Ramon panics. And Eastwood taunts him and says, aim for the heart, Ramon. You know if you want to kill. Aim for the heart. <laughs> and down goes Eastwood. And then he gets up. The bad guys are a little distressed. <laughs> to make it quick, if you don't remember, they unload on him. Boom, 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 and he's on the ground. He waits till all their bullets are gone. And he gets up, lifts his poncho, pulls out an iron plate, drops it on the ground, and dispatches with all of them. Paul just said, you are Clint Eastwood in an iron plate. Has insensitivity, sensuality, Self-deception, rotting, hit you like a 50 caliber kill shot. Bam! And taken your feet right off the solid rock. In the name of the Lord Jesus, hear me. Get up! And go straight to God. And straight to one another. In 15 lines from this passage about being clothed in Christ, Paul will say this. Be imitators of God, therefore. As dearly loved children, live a life of love just as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Get up, PCA. Run to your king. Run to one another. May he break us beautifully. Let's pray. Just the time I feel that I've been caught in the mire of self. Just the time I feel my mind's been bought by worldly wealth. 
That's when the breeze begins to blow. I know the Spirit's call. And all my worldly wanderings just melt into his love. And oh, I want to know you more. Deep within my soul, I want to know you. Oh, I want to know you. To feel your heart and know your mind. Looking in your eyes stirs up within me. Cries that say, I want to know you. Oh, I want to know you more. Lord, I want to know you more. Please, Lord, stand us up. And let us do your bidding. In Jesus' name, amen. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.